Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Let's uh, pick up where we were. Now, again, what Christ is trying to do here is he's trying to establish the spiritual leadership of the disciples. And he's got to do that by destroying the credibility of the Pharisees and Sadducees and pointing to a new leadership. And he's drawn a distinction. We've already talked about some of the differences here where he's trying to make this distinction. Then he says um, in verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. What's he saying here? What's, what's, what was the characteristics of the Pharisees? Well, I mean, when it comes to tithing, I mean, they, they got right down and tithed everything. And what is it that he was talking about? Pardon me? What is this that he's talking about here? Mint, dill, cumin, what is Those that? Those are the smallest little things to do it in. Yeah, they, they have ten seeds, and they count off one seed for God and ten for themselves. So what what was their whole... What was their whole sense of rightness with God based on? Work. Rules, regulations, right? Since it was built on rules and regulations. Now understand, not every false teacher has all of these characteristics, right? But generally, they're going to have a bunch of these. What is the true spiritual leader calling people to? He said you should have mercy and justice and faithfulness. That's the important stuff. It's relationship. A true spiritual leader is calling people to relationship with God. What is God more interested in? The fact that you gave him your exact tithe or that you treat people with respect and love and dignity and justice and mercy and kindness. And by the way, Christ is saying here, um, it's not that you shouldn't have tithed. But you guys think just because you tithe, you're okay. God is not looking for the adherence to the rule. He's looking for your heart, your relationship with him. You've missed that. The rules and the regulations, tithing. That should be a fruit of your relationship. In other words, you're doing it because you love the Lord. That's right. And that's what he caught on earlier. What is the greatest commandment? Well, if you love God, all of that stuff takes care of itself. You're not interested in the other stuff. In fact, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you have the means, how much are you going to give him? As much as you can. You're getting more than a tithe. You're not going to stop at the tithe and say, okay, I've done my duty. I can blow the rest on whatever I want. You're going to want to give to the Lord. You're going to want to honor Him. He said, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. What's the significance of that? Mm Mm-hmm. Right. The gnat was the smallest unclean animal. And where did gnats usually wind up in those days? Up your nose. <laughs> well, in, 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 your food. in your food. And so what were they? Well, they would actually drink their wine by, you know, sucking it through their teeth and then spitting the gnats out. Now, we think gross there, but, you know, they didn't understand that back in those days. They didn't understand germs and stuff like that. Or they would strain it through their handkerchief or through some something to get the gnats out. He said, you know, you're very good at getting rid of the little dinky, itty-bitty stuff, 
but then you go back and eat a camel, which is what? The largest unclean animal they knew in common life. Yeah. You strain out the gnat, but you swallow a camel. Now this is very important. One, one of the things that you find with a lot of false systems of belief in, in that is they really minor on things that don't matter in the grand scheme of things. And they miss the relationship. They miss the purpose of why they do what they do. What is the true spiritual leader always calling people to, to examine? Their heart. Why are you doing this? Remember we talked about the, in the Sermon on the Mount last week? When you pray, how are you to pray? Not like them. How do they pray? Out on the street corner. Out on the street corner to be seen of men. How are you to pray? Well, pray to your Father in secret. Now, is he prohibiting public prayer? No. No. He's just saying, don't pray in order to be seen by people. Because if you do, then you've heard, you know, you've gotten your, your reward. And when you give your tithes or your alms, you're doing your good deeds, basically. That's the idea, they're good deeds. How are you to do it publicly so everybody sees it? No. It's your heart. It always goes back to the heart. Why is it that you're doing what you're doing? And then he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tomb, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What's the other characteristic of a false teacher? What are they worried about? Appearances. The external appearances. The external. What's the true spiritual leader worried about? The internal. The heart. You ever run into people that are just worried about the externals? The clothes you wear. The Bible you take with you. The car you drive. Or how you look. You know, you keep in the Rules of the church. Yeah, man looks at all the outward appearance, but the Lord looks under right. the heart. Mm -hmm. I mean, the best example of this I remember in my life is the whole concept of movies. I mean, there was a time in this church where you were prohibited as a church leader to go to a movie theater. Now, you could watch the same movie on TV, or you could rent the video when those came out. Just don't go to the movie theater. I had a lot of those things growing up. Yeah. What are, you, what are you focusing on? You're focusing on the external. God's not interested. Understand this. If God, unless there's a prohib prohibition in the scripture or a principle violated, God's not worried about the external. He's worried about your heart. Because if you get your heart right, what's going to happen to the externals? It's going to follow. They're going to sort out. That's what he just Yeah. And he's talking about, and this, by the way, this was common practice in those days. As part of the as part of the Passover, they had a contingent of Jews that went out and they painted or whitewashed the tombs, the burial places. Why would they do that? Well, well, no, not that. If you were a Jew and you touched an unclean body or a grave, what happened? You got ceremonially unclean. You were not able to take so they the Passover. Something between the grave and right. Person. They wanted to point out all of the graves so that you did not accidentally touch one and become ceremonially unclean. They whitewashed them. And you know, I've gone to, you know, I've, I've gone every go out to what's the big cemetery out in Los Angeles. Um, where all the stars are buried. What's the name of that? It's a big. I. I it's. I'm. I'm drawing a complete blank. Donna and I went out there. What's the name of that big cemetery out in California? We went to. Forest Lawn. I think it's Forest Lawn. 
beautiful buildings. But what are they full of? Rotting bones. Rotting bones. That's what Christ is talking about here. You guys look good on the outside. You've polished up the outside. You look good. But let me tell you where your heart's at. It's rotten. It's rotten. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had been alive in the days of our fathers, we have not taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. What's their problem? He said, you know, you guys think that you wouldn't have done the sins of your fathers. But you're doing the same thing. In fact, you're worse because who are you going to kill? Oh, you're not going to kill the prophet. You're going to kill the son. He says, you know, all the blood of the martyrs of the centuries are going to come up on the head of this generation. Fill up the cup. Fill up the cup of God's wrath. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. What's the significance of Abel to Zechariah? Now it just so happens it's A to Z, but... What's the significance of those two? What do you know about Abel? What's his claim to fame? He offered a sacrifice to God and What was he the first? Murder. The first martyr, the first murdered for his belief. How about Zechariah? What was he? In the Old Testament, what was he? Prophet. He was a prophet. He's the last mentioned prophet that was murdered. So Christ is saying, when you look at your Old Testament, from the righteous blood of Abel, who's the first one mentioned in the Scriptures as being martyred, all the way to Zechariah, who's the last one mentioned as murdered, what have you guys done? You've murdered the prophets again and again and again. You've murdered the prophets. I've sent you scribes. I've sent you f people to tell you. I've sent you prophets. And what have you done all of them? You've killed them. And all their blood is going to come upon this generation. What do false religious leaders do? They believe that they're not going to make the mistakes of everybody else. But they're doing the very same thing. They're doing the very same thing. He said, you guys think you wouldn't have killed the prophets. Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as hen gathers her brood under wings, but you would not see your houses left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is Christ finally telling them here? Desolate. Christ said, I would have often gathered you together. I would have, I was here to gather you, to give you protection, but you wouldn't do it. So what's going to happen? Your house is left desolate. Now, he's talking to the crowds. He's talking to Israel as a nation. What is he basically telling Israel as a nation? I'm no longer your God. You're not going to, you are being left desolate. In fact, you're going to be left desolate until when? The time. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Now, you know, again, and you know, I, I, I do believe that the premillennial view is the best view to answer this question. What group of people is he talking to here? What nationality? What people? So, who would be the people that say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Well, that's if you're a covenant theologian. Our present day reality in the kingdom. Because in the kingdom there's neither Jew nor Greek. I think he's talking to national Israel here. Your house is going to be left to you desolate. And it was, was it not? What happened shortly after this? In 70 AD. 70 AD, the Romans came and that was the end of Israel. Horrible. Yeah. And you're going to be left desolate until you come to that point where you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I think that's what Zechariah 13 and 14 are pointing to, that future day when Israel does again return and sees the Messiah for who he is. So what does Jesus do at this point? Chapter 24, he leaves the temple. This is the last time Christ is at the temple. He doesn't come back to the temple. And he was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. What are they doing? By the way, the temple was one of the great wonders of the world at this time. It was a beautiful building. Herod had been building it for many years. It was beautified. It was a magnificent structure. And so what are the disciples doing? They're pointing out the grandeur of the temple. And Christ says, I'm going to tell you something. There's not going to be one stone here left upon another that will not be thrown down. Now these are massive stones, some of them weighing two, three, four tons a pop. Now that's a pretty significant statement for him to make. But it was fulfilled literally because... When Rome took over Jerusalem, burned the temple, the gold of the temple melted in between the rocks. And to get the gold, they literally pulled the rocks apart to get to the gold that was, bare, that was melted between the stones. And he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age. What are they asking Christ? What's the question? What has Israel done? Israel's rejected the Messiah, right? Christ said, Your house is left desolate. They're wanting, from the Jewish perspective, they're wanting to know when the kingdom will be established. Exactly. That is the question they're asking. Because they're still looking at it from the, from the Jewish perspective. Right. Now, how does Christ answer them? Well, first of all, he says, watch out when you hear someone say that there's a Christ. Okay. But here, here's, well, here, let me ask you this. How does he not answer them? What is their assumption in the question? Gary hit it just now. What is their assumption? That the kingdom was imminent. Well, not, not as much as the kingdom was imminent, but that there was a what? Kingdom. Yeah. That's the assumption. The assumption they're making is that there is a future kingdom. There is a time of the Messiah's rule. And they're asking Christ, when is that? And how does Christ respond? To me, this is the key to understanding Matthew 24 and 25. If, you did, if, you, if, if, if it was true that there was no future literal kingdom for Israel, how would he have answered? What would he have told him? 
He had to set it somehow. He said, wait a minute, guys, you got this all fouled up. Understand, there is no future. Rather, it's all spiritual. He doesn't do that. And his very answer here is implied what? There is one. Because he doesn't say there isn't one. Now, there's another perspective too. He knew they were never going to understand until the Holy Spirit came. Because they, they still looked at it from the perspective of the Jewish perspective of, of the shining yeah. light on the big white horse. And of course it still is your perspective on yeah. the kingdom. But if you think about it in the relationship aspect of it, the kingdom provides that with God. So, and what else is there if you have a relationship with God? I, I, the, my only response to that is that, and, and the reason I would not hold to that viewpoint, is that Christ then led them to believe something that he knew was not true. And I don't think he would have done that. For example, give me explain that. If, if there were no future kingdom, he would have told them. I believe that. I believe that. Not necessarily. I, I know. I, I, I know. We can debate that. But I would, I would say that if there were no future kingdom, he would have told them plainly about that. I mean, he was, he was in the process of straightening out theology mode here. Yeah, because he just told them he left their house desolate. And as he's walking away, he had this long oratory about now everything it, that's wrong with this city. It was desolate until when? No, in the context, in, in this passage. Your house is left desolate until... Until you repent. Say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Right. And I believe that. I believe that, that Israel is desolate until there comes a future... And I think there's a future day when they will as a nation repent. There's coming a day. That's the only way to explain really Zechariah 13 and 14 if you read those two chapters. Again, I'm just bringing this from the perspective, the pre-mill perspective, you know. And I, again, there's some godly men that argue the other side. I'm just explaining it from the way I understand it, which I think fits well with the text. Because then they're going to ask Christ, well, when's, when are you going to come? Now, they've got him as the Messiah down now, right? Mm -hmm. They're still confused on what all of that means. Plus, they're still looking at the age. Yeah. They had the, the, the present age right. and the messianic age. You got it. The age that they're thinking about, the end of the age that they're thinking about, is what age? The age that they're in. And to the Jew, what is the next age? The messianic age. The messianic age. The kingdom. And I think Christ hinted at this when he says, it will not be forgiven you not only in this age, but the age to come. Christ is hinting that there is the present age and the age to come. All right? So, Christ is going to answer what question? The question that they ask him. This is very important to understand. He's going to answer their question. Because the Jews, and if you go back and look at rabbinical literature, the Jews had this concept that when the Messiah comes, he's going to destroy the established order and start over anew. So when Christ said these, these stones are going to be cast down, the disciples are thinking, that's right, the Messiah is going to destroy this temple and build a greater and grander one. That's what they were looking for. You're right, Gary. Their entire viewpoint, their entire vision was centered on the physical reality of the kingdom. The spiritual kingdom stuff, they did not get. They didn't get it. You're absolutely right. They didn't get it. The time is coming and now is because God is a spirit. He's looking for those that worship Yeah. in spirit and truth. So in other words, in worship, everything is going to change. Yeah. And you're no, no longer worship in a building, and you worship in your heart. Right. Because the full revelation of the Messiah is now come. And then he says, uh, so he's going to answer the question, what is the sign of your coming and the close of the age? When will the, these things be? What's going to be the sign of your coming? And the word coming there is parousia, or I think not parousia, it's apocalypto. The apocalypse is the unveiling of the king, the establishment of the kingdom. That's what's wrapped up in that concept in the close of this age. And Jesus answered and said, well, let me tell you how, what it's going to be. 
See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you'll hear wars and rumors of war. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, earthquakes in various places, and all these things are the beginning of birth pains. What did he not give them? A date. What did he give them? Circumstances. Signs. What's it look like? And again, these are signs on the horizon. When I was a young kid, I would sit on the porch outside, and I remember when you looked out west and you saw a black, pitch black sky in the summer, what did you know? Storm. Storm's headed this way. It might still be shun, 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 shiny sun where you're at, but you knew there's a storm coming, and that's what he's talking about here. What's the character of this coming of, his, of the end of the age? Well, Wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilence, earthquakes. And then he says they're going to deliver you up to tribulation to put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. What's the characteristic of his coming? People are going to hate his followers. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because the love... And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. What's the gospel of the kingdom? Good news about the kingdom of God. The open invitation. Open invitation. Yes. Bride says, come. Yeah. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. What's the abomination of desolation? Well, back in the book of Daniel, the abomination of desolation was when Antiochus Epiphanes came into the temple and he sacrificed the pig on the altar. All right, now, now let's, let's look at this text here a minute. When you see, who's the you he's talking to? His disciples. Some have said it's the disciples. What's the difficulty with that interpretation from an historical perspective? <clears throat> Did the disciples ever see an abomination of desolation? Not all of them seen it, but some have probably seen the destruction of the temple. Well, what is the abomination of desolation? It's a sacrifice. It's the desecration of the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar. They never saw that. That's not an historical event that they were seeing. I believe the way to understand is who, what group is Jesus talking to? What were the disciples? What was their nationality? What were they? Jewish. He's talking to Jewish people in the Jewish context. So if there's an abomination of desolation, of what necessity must there also be to have that? A temple and an altar. And when you put this together, I think, with the book of Revelation, what do you understand? There's coming a day when Israel will once again institute temple worship. They're ready right now to do it. If they could build their temple right now, they would. And he said, when you see that abomination of desolation, all right, and when you, can, when you link this in with Daniel chapter 9, I think it's the Antichrist who desecrates the temple and sets himself up as God. What are you to do? Flee to the mountain. If you're in Judea, where do you go? You run. You don't even look back. You don't go to your house to get a change of clothes. You run. Don't go back into the house. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And it's too bad for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants. Why? Because you need to get out of town fast because what's happening? What's coming? Great tribulation and persecution. Such as has not been from the beginning of the world till now, no, nor ever shall be. He said, when you see that abomination of desolation, you better get out of town because what do you know Satan is going to do? He's going to come after 
the Jewish nation to destroy them. Get out of town. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And if anyone says, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, the elect. When this great time of persecution is coming, what are you going to have a proliferation of? False People who are claiming to be Christ. Now, just as an aside, there's a group of people called the Preterists who say this was all fulfilled historically in the destruction of Jerusalem. I believe you have to do major stretches with the text to make it apply. Major stretches. Because this was not the characteristic of what happened during that time. I believe this is talking about a future time. All right. Now there's some that don't believe that. I'm just coming from my perspective here, my best understanding. And see, I've told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, here he's in the wilderness, do not go out, why would they be doing that? Well, to lure people out. Hey, Christ is here, let's go see him. And then you go to see him, and what happens? It's a trap. And by the way, there are a lot of people claiming to be Christ today, isn't there? Yeah. And say, look, he's in the inner room, do not believe it. Why? For as the lightning comes from the east and shines to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. How are... Christ is saying, when I actually come back, what's going to be the characteristic <clears throat> evidence that I'm back? Visible by everyone. You can't miss it. Sure. You cannot miss it. It's not, I'm not going to show up in a hinter room. I'm not going to sneak in via the desert. When I come back, you're going to know it. Why? Because where the eagles, where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. What does that mean? How do you know where the corpse is? Just look where the when, when the time comes for me, all you need to do is look for the evidence sign, and that's where I'll be. You're not going to miss it. As the lightning comes from the east and shines the west. And immediately after the tribulation of those days, now, what's the question he answered here? What shall be the, when shall these things be? That's the first part of the question. When? Does he give them a date? No. But what does he describe? The characteristics of the time. Now he goes and says, okay, what about the sign? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his chosen, his elect, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. What's the sign of Christ's coming here? Nope. Nope. Before that. First of all, what does God do to set the stage in verse 29? Turns off the heavenly lights. Then what shows up? Well, if the lights are out, how do you know it's Him? He's the only thing. This is the effulgent, brilliant, blinding, Shekinah glory of God. God turns out the heavenly lights, and the only light that you see is what? The coming of the Son of Man. Is that mistakable? Everybody is going to see it. And the tribes of the earth will what? Mourn. They're not ready. And what's, Christ, what's the Messiah going to do? He's going to gather his elect. And then he says, um, so he said, okay, what will be the, when will these things be? What's going to be the sign of your coming? And when's going to be the end of the age? So now he's going to answer with another question, when? And he answers this very masterfully, I think. Notice, by the way, he's not given a date. 
So when these boys come along and say, we figured out when Christ is coming back, what do you need to do? Ignore them. Ignore them. They don't know. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So when you see these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall not pass away. What's the lesson of the fig tree? What's the illustration? By the way, what Christ is going to do right now is going to give several illustrations of his coming. He's not given a date, but he's telling you what it's going to be like. And his first illustration is the illustration of the fig tree. If I tell you that the cherry blossoms are out in Washington, what do you know? Springtime. Springtime. You don't know the exact date or hour, do you? But what are the cherry blossoms a picture of? Spring. What are the fig tree budding a picture of? Summer is near. There's a, there's a fudge factor, right? But what do you see? It's near. And Christ says, so when you see these things come to pass, what do you know? What things has he been talking about? Wars, rumors of wars, pestilences, earthquakes, false teachers arising to deceive many. When you see these signs, what do you know? It is near. In fact, it is so near that the people who are alive to see the signs begin are the same ones who are there to see it what? And this is not a long, drawn-out process. Say that again. The people who see the signs begin will see it all come to pass. Numbers 20 says, I tell you, this generation... He's not talking to the people that he's talking to? No, I, don't, I think within context. Now, there's some that say that. The problem with that is then you have to stretch everything to try and make it fit that generation. I think in the context here, he's saying the generation, this generation, well, what generation is it that he's talking about here? The generation that sees these things start are going to see them end. That's a valid, I think, way to understand it. Now, again, there's some of the preterists that say, no, that's referring to the generation he's talking about there, that they're going to see it all because it was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, I think that's a stretch because the problem is, if that was true, at the end of the destruction of Jerusalem, what should you have had? The literal, physical kingdom of God start in reality. Yeah, the spiritual one was the kingdom that he... Right, and and I don't believe that that is be, that that answers the issues best. Now, some believe that you have to slog through it. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows—not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. What day or hour? The the exact instant. Who knows that? The Father only. You say, well, man, I thought Jesus was omniscient. Doesn't he know everything? Well, what did he do in his incarnation? He gave up the divine prerogatives. It's not that he was ignorant or didn't know. In his humiliation, he limited his knowledge to that which was revealed by the Father. And then he uses an illustration. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. He's going to draw an illustration from the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. What is that a picture of? Life as usual. Life. There's nothing necessarily sinful about this, is there? No. Now some have said, well, the days of Noah refer to the wickedness of Noah's day. No, that's not the illustration he's pointing out here. He's not keying in on the wickedness, is he? He's keying in on what? the normal daily activities of everyday life. Just like the days of Noah. But what, what, what was different about the days of Noah? And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. They were eating, drinking, marrying, giving a marriage, and then what did it start doing? Raining. Never saw that before. Some of them were seven, eight hundred years old, never seen it rain. 
Something's going on here. They're caught unaware. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Who got taken away? In the days of the flood, who got swept away? Everybody. The wicked. Everybody. Who gets taken away here? The wicked. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken away in what sense? The word here, taken away, paradidomy, means to take away to judgment. Two one will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. The people who are taken away are the ones who are taken away in judgment. Who gets left? People to do what? To enter the kingdom. <clears throat> Follow? What happened in the days of Noah? The people who got swept away, who got taken away, were all what? The wicked. God preserved Noah. What happens in the days of the Son of Man? Well, who gets taken away? All the unbelievers. They are. They try to. There's no rapture here. Don't go there. This is not talking about rapture. And the idea there is the people who get taken away are the ones who are taken away in judgment. That's the whole imagery he has here. Then it says here, um, therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Now, what was the characteristic of the people in the days of Noah? What did they know generally from the preaching of Noah? That there was going to be uh, a rain. That there's coming judgment. They, they, they had this general concept that judgment could come, but they were not prepared for it, were they? They ignored it, they ignored the signs. And then it was what? Too late. What's Christ trying to say? When I'm coming back, there are going to be people alive that have this concept that, yeah, I can come back. Yeah, judgment is near. But they're not going to be ready. And they're going to be planning their wedding. They're going to be planning their outing. They're going to be planning their vacation. And my coming is going to ruin it all. Because they're not going to be ready. They have a general concept that it could be coming. But they don't prepare for it. Then he says, uh, but know this, that if, the, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. What's this? this is the third illustration. Fig tree, days of Noah, now you've got the robber. If you're the homeowner, what do you know there is a remote possibility? Get robbed. All right? So... If somebody robs you and you are awake and you know what time they're coming, you're prepared, right? What's Christ saying? I'm going to come in a day and an hour that you're not ready. You know there's the potentiality of being robbed. You know that it could be there, but you're not looking. You're not ready. And what's going to happen? I'm going to come in a day and an hour. You don't know. What are, what's the common thread in all of this? unexpectedness you know generalities you know you have this concept vague concept that I'm coming but you don't know the day or the hour so you need to be ready at all times so you're ready at the time of my arrival because so I'm going to catch you off guard who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give him their food at the proper time blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes truly I say to you he will set him over all his possessions but that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. What about the religious leaders, the people who should know better? What's Christ telling about them now? Another illustration. The master of the house leaves. He's going on a trip. They didn't have cell phones in that day. They didn't have telegrams. So he said, I'm going to go on a trip, and I'll come back in a few weeks. 
Do you know when he's going to come back? Nope. nope. So as a servant, what should you be doing while the master is gone? Everything you're supposed to be doing when he's here. You bet. And if you don't, and you say, well, he won't be back today. I'm going to go down and have dinner with the boys and get drunk. Your luck is he's going to do what? Come back that day. Come back. And what's the illustration Christ is saying here? When I come back, blessed are those of my servants who are ready for me. I'm going to put them in charge of my possession, but if there's some people that say, or supposedly are my servants, and they're not doing their job, they're beating their fellow servants, they're not paying attention, what's going to happen to them? Where's outer darkness and gnashing of teeth? Hell. And here's the point. And this is the thing to understand. These are illustrations. And Christ is trying to make the statement here that why is it that you would beat your fellow servants? Because you do not believe in Christ. It's not that you're saved by your works. That's not what he's talking about here. But if you truly believe Jesus can come again and you're looking for that, you're not going to be messing around thinking that he's delaying his coming. Do you understand what's going on here? You need to be ready. You don't know when the master's going to come back. Then he has ten virgins. The kingdom of heaven is like uh, ten virgins which took their lamps. Went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. But when the, For when the foolish took their lamps, they had no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. What's this image, image of here? Now I've heard this talk about the rapture of the church too. No rapture here, sorry. What's this an image of? Well, he's drawn an illustration from that day. What's that day? Well, in that day, in the marriage, um, the marriage customs of the day, a man and a woman would be betrothed to each other. From that point, they were technically officially considered to be married. They did not live together or anything like that, but they were betrothed. Then the man would go and he would build a house. He would build his place for his bride to live. And, you know, several months to a year later, when I was ready, he would gather his friends and they would make a procession to the bride's house. He would pick up his bride, come back to his father's house, throw a lavish party for several days, and then everybody would leave and they would consummate the marriage and live as man and wife. That's the imagery here. And the, the, um, the bride would have friends that were her friends. And they would go with her to the party. They would be ready. They didn't know when the bridegroom was going to come. They just had to be ready. They had this general idea he could come back in the next three or four days. You needed to be ready. You didn't know when he was going to show up. So here's this, and by the way, the church is the bride of Christ. We're not the virgins. We're the bride. Christ is the bridegroom. So what's it saying here? Christ is saying, I'm, I'm coming with my bride back to my father's, back to the father's house, back to the celebration, back to the marriage feast, which is what? What's the marriage feast? Earlier on. The kingdom, right? What's Christ doing? He's gathered his bride. He's coming back to the kingdom. The bride's friends are to meet them and go in and, and party with the bride and the groom. And what's the problem with half of them? They're not ready. And what do they tell the wise ones? Give us some of your oil. And they say, no, lest there not be enough for both of us, but go and buy some oil. And while these bride, these virgins were out buying the oil or getting ready, what happened? The bridegroom came. The bridegroom and the bride, along with the bride, came. They went into the marriage feast, which was a picture of what? The kingdom. The door was shut. And then the five virgins show up and say, let us in. And what happened to them? Why? They weren't ready. I don't know who you are. I don't know who you are. You're not ready. What's this a picture of? Well, you don't know the day or the hour, but what is, what is going to be the character of some people in that time? They're going to think they're ready, right? Yep. 
They're going to be, in fact, they're going to be looking for the king to come. They're going to be looking for Christ. They're going to be waiting for him to come. And they think they're going to be ready, but they're not ready. Because what do they lack? The oil. They're not ready. And while they're trying to get ready, what happens? Bridegroom comes, it's too late. What's the image that Christ is trying to skid here? You need to be ready at all times. You can't be scrambling to get ready at the last minute. And there are going to be some people, I believe, that when Christ comes back, they're going to say, yeah, I want him to come back. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to party. I'm going to do my own thing. And just before he shows up, I'll get ready. And guess what's going to happen to them? It's going to be too late. you got to be ready at all times. A lot of people are doing that, you know. They're doing that even now. Have a good time now because eventually you've got to settle down, raise a family, accept your responsibilities, get right with God. How many of them don't make it? Yep. And then Christ gives another illustration, the parable of the talents. For it would be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, and to each according to his ability, then he went away. So what's the master doing? Well, he's got to take a trip, and he calls in his servants. And he uh, gives them his wealth to do what? Invest. Invest, manage it. Right? He who had received five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made another five talents. So also he who had two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went, dug into the ground, and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them, and he who had received five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. What did that servant do? Well, he doubled the investment. Now, why did he receive five instead of two or one? Because that's what the master gave him. And also because of what? Why did the master give him five? The master is the boss. But earlier on it said why? He gave to each according to their what? Ability. Ability. Yeah. He, this guy was more capable, so the master gave him more responsibility. And then the guy who had two talents came and said, here, I've, I've made two more talents. And what did the master say? Great job. You've been faithful a little, I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who also received the one talent came forward and saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping what you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. And his master said, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. You ought to have invested my money with the bankers. At my coming, I would have received that which was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the, from him give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, will, more will be given. I have an abundance, but to one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into what? What's that a picture of? Ooh, now, so what is this illustration a picture of? Well, Christ is saying, I have servants. And those servants each have abilities, opportunities, whatever I've given them. When I come back, I'm going to give an accounting. And there's going to be some servants that do what? Do well. They do well. Why? Because they've taken advantage of the opportunities. They have, whatever God has given them, they've done something with it. Whether they had five or two, they did something with it. And there's going to be others that have opportunity, and what are they going to do with their opportunity? What are they going to do with what God has given them? Bury it. Why? He's a hard master. I don't want to serve him. I'm just going to give it back. This is the point. It's, Christ is not talking about here salvation by faith or by works. He's saying, if you are truly born again, what are you going to do with the opportunities that God's given you? You're going to do something with them. 
And then he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him. What's these illustrations a picture of? What Christ is trying to do here, I think, is trying to say, even though you see the sign of the Son of Man coming in heaven, you still don't know what? The exact instant. So you need to be ready. And here's how you need to be ready. You need to remember like the days of Noah, what happened. They were doing the daily affairs of life until the flood came and took them all away. There are going to be some people alive when I come again that are going to be doing business as usual. And I'm going to catch them completely off guard. And then he says you, can, you need to be ready like a, a man who knows his house can be broken into, but if he's not watching, what's going to happen? A thief is going to come in a day when you don't know it. And you need to be like a servant who, who knows his master's coming back, but you don't know the exact time, so you need to be ready at the right time so that when he comes, you're not caught off guard. And you need to be like five wise virgins that took oil in their lamp. They were not only prepared and looking for the bridegroom, but they were actually prepared for him coming. And when I come back, there's going to be some people that are looking for me, but they're not going to be ready. Why? Because they're lacking what? Oil for the lamps. Now, some have said that that refers to what? The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. They look like they're in. They look like they're part of it, but they lack the Holy Spirit. And so it's also going to be when I call my servants in and I'm going to ask them, what have you done with the opportunities? They don't possess. He said, you need to be ready. Because when I come and sit on the throne of my glory... And I come with all the holy angels. What I'm going to do, I'm going to gather everybody before me. And I'm going to sort them out like the sheep and the goats. What's going to happen to the goats? Go in the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What about the sheep? Come in, you're blessed. Enter into the joy of my presence. There's going to be separation. And how, how is the separation going to somewhat be? Well, if you gave a cup of cold water in my name, what are you? To these, these of these my brothers, what are you? You've done it unto me. Now, again, some people say, well, wait a minute. This looks like uh, these people at the end of the age when the judgment comes that they're being saved by their works. You know, if they were kind to God's people, to his brothers, that they're allowed in. Why were they kind? Because they were true believers. They were on the left side. They were the true believers. They didn't do it in order to become true believers. They did it because they were. They did it because they were saved, not to be saved. Right. There has been a true transformation. Yep. Because what's the time going to be like? It's going to be like if you help a Jew, you're going to die along with them. The only people who are going to help the Jews are people who are truly redeemed and are willing to put their life on the line. And what's Christ going to do? He's going to allow them into his kingdom. They're going to come into the kingdom. But what's going to happen to all of the rest of them? They'll be cast into outer darkness, wailing, gnashing of teeth. This may be a silly question. I just, I just haven't asked it. All right. Being ready... Is there a distinction if you're pre-tribulational or post-tribulational? What's the ready? How does it to a post-tribulation? Good question here. Whether you're a post, pre, mid, ah, or whatever, yeah. you most that I've read all believe that you need to be ready. The question is, what group is he talking about here? Yeah. Is he talking to the church here? I don't believe he's talking to the church here. I believe he's talking to the Jewish people that are alive at that time, his people, all right, who are redeemed after the, the rapture. But if I look at this passage here and it talks about these signs, and I believe the rapture occurs before the second coming, what is this telling me? Yeah, if I believe the rapture occurs at least seven years or so before the second coming, and I'm seeing the signs on the horizon regarding the second coming, what should I 
get? Rapture's coming any day. Rapture's even earlier, so I better even be more ready. All right. If you believe in the rapture. If you believe in the rapture. If you believe in the rapture. But I think in any case, I would say, what is the or? And you know, we talk about this a couple minutes. What is the orthodox view on it? In other words, what I'm saying is, what is the non-negotiable, essential truth that's being taught here? He's coming back. He is coming back, and you better be ready. That's we can argue till the cows come home on pre, post, mid, ah, whatever, millennialism, partial rapture. Pre, we can argue till the cows come home. I have a set that I believe in that I think makes the most sense. Other godly men have a different set, but we both agree on one thing. He's coming back. Those boys down at the T4G conference, you've got a Ligon Duncan that is a covenant theologian, amillennial boy. You've got R.C. Sproul that is amillennial. You've got a John MacArthur that's premillennial, pre-tribulational. But what do they all agree on? He's coming back. You better be ready. That's the essential. We can banter back and forth on the, you know, the character of the kingdom and all that. But listen, there is a kingdom of God of which I want to be a part. And there is a spiritual kingdom of God of which I am a part. And those are the non-negotiables. Christ... The Bible is not 100% crystal clear beyond any reasonable shadow of a doubt on the order of the end-time events, as much as I would like it to be. As a matter of fact, the kingdom, that's at the top of the list of what we should be seeking. Seek ye first the kingdom, the of, kingdom God, of God. Righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. Yeah. I want to be part of the kingdom of God. Jesus is my king. And um, that's the pursuit. And what is the essential theology? Jesus is coming again. And the only way you're going to be ready at that time is to be ready now. And that's what Christ is trying to say here. You may see the sign of His coming. You may have an inkling of when that day is coming. But if you're not ready by that time, you're going you're gonna to miss it. You're going to be running out like those five virgins trying to buy oil for the lamp. And it's going to be too late. There's no guarantee of salvation. And I hate to say it, but hell is full of people that waited one day too many. Almost persuaded, but lost. And Christ is saying, don't, don't go there. You need to be ready. Somebody who's waiting right now going, wait a minute, I got plenary, you didn't indulge it. Christ saying, You can go, yeah, and God will tell him, said, You can go and talk to the popes over there in that section. (laughs) All right, who gave you that plenary indulgence? There is no plenary indulgence. Well, next week we'll pick up with the crucifixion and resurrection. And again, I, you know, we can only do certain vignettes of Christ's life. We couldn't do the whole thing, but we did pretty good to get through four chapters here tonight. Hopefully I've given you a framework for thinking about this. So, so let's uh, close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this day you've granted and pray that you would help us to ponder these truths. And I pray that all of us in here will be ready at all time. So we're ready at that time. May we not be those who are caught unaware, not understanding what the time is. Father, you've been gracious to us to give us eternal life. You've shown us your truth, and all we can do is fall at your feet and say thank you so much. Help us be witnesses and testimonies of this great truth and preach and teach with urgency that time is running out. Bring us back safely next week. Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. 
For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.